academic freedom in the sense of the ability to challenge orthodoxies and pursue knowledge with critical independence and autonomy is at the very heart of what makes a university what it is. And I'm concerned when these things start becoming relaxed or not top priorities, because I then wonder really what purpose a university serves without that. Coming up on British Thought Leaders, Professor Ian Pace, founding member of Britain's first council to support academic freedom in universities. Ian says movements such as gender identity, ideology, decolonisation and critical race theory are affecting academic freedom. In my own field of music, uh, the arguments have been used often to try and literally drive classical music out of the curriculum, viewed as little more than expression of a colonial perspective. He says politicians need to address university funding before it's too late. We're going to see in the next few years, I think, a lot more redundancies, a lot more closures to departments, maybe even some universities going bankrupt if uh, new solutions are not found. And that worries me very much, and that has huge implications for academic freedom. I'm Lee Hall, and this is British Thought Leaders. Professor Ian Pace, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thank you. You're a founding member of Britain's first council to support academic freedom in universities. You talked a little bit about the council's goals and how it will operate. Yes, I'm a founding member of the London Universities Council for Academic Freedom, which came about after an initiative between early this year, 2023, three of us, uh, the sociologist Alice Sullivan, the mathematician John Armstrong, and myself. And we were inspired by the example of the Council for Academic Freedom at Harvard University, which was also founded earlier this year. And we were quite quickly joined by a range of other founding members from across London universities, around 20 of those who formed the core of the group, and then numerous other members, uh, which are now well over 100, and growing. This is a different type of organisation from some existing ones, such as, for example, the Free Speech Union, of which I and some others are also members. That We're not aligned to any other body. We don't receive any external funding, at least not at present. And we will not actively promote any political view beyond our founding principles, so as to remain inclusive of people of all types of different ideological persuasion. Those founding principles are fundamentally about free inquiry in teaching, research, artistic expression, speech, intellectual diversity, the type of diversity that lots of statements about diversity do not often include. And we believe universities need to actively promote plural views and not impose official ideological positions on issues which are contested, such as so-called decolonization, about which I can say some more. And then also the third founding principle is civil discourse, open and free discourse, but in a respectful, civil and scholarly manner. So we're avoiding harassment, avoid ad hominem insults or attempts to shout others down and obstruct their freedom of speech in the process. So we're not an organisation so much taking up individual cases as one trying to engender wider visibility, thought, knowledge and discourse on the subject of academic freedom to actively promote it and encourage institutions to do so. And we're going to be organising a whole series of events uh, to this end, which will take place in different London institutions. 
and also various subgroups of us are doing our own research on lots of related areas or topics and seeking to influence policy both within institutions and also government policy. And some of our members were involved in some of the consultations which led to the new uh, Higher Education Free Speech Act, which was passed earlier this year. But just to add that we are an organisation with a heterogeneous membership and whilst we, pr we will produce various documents and proposals, we always invite members to choose whether they want to put their name to these rather than automatically assuming that because they're members. And so over and above the founding principles, I don't think any of us would ever presume to speak for the whole membership and nor am I doing so at the moment. For example, I'm very much in favour of the new Act, but I know there are some members who are more sceptical about it. And just having such distinct views is a strength and a sign of inclusivity. Yeah. And I suppose, I believe, academic freedom in the sense of the ability to challenge orthodoxies and pursue knowledge with critical independence and autonomy is at the very heart of what makes a university what it is. And I'm concerned when these things start becoming relaxed or not top priorities, because I then wonder really what purpose a university serves without that. And so that's why I think it's such a central issue for all of us. And phenomena such as cancel culture seem like, in many cases, attempts to quash that and impose ideological uniformity. Mm. Can you give us some examples of some of the, the violations of freedoms that major and your colleagues want to start this organisation? Absolutely. There's been a whole range of things that have particularly grown in the last five or six years. Uh, one has been the introduction in various institutions of quite censorious policies relating to views on uh, transgender or transsexual identity, in particular trying to declare invalid the view of so-called gender-critical people, those who believe there's a fundamental difference between biological sex and gender identity, um, and that various arenas or spaces, whether they be changing rooms, prisons, refuges, sports games or so on, should be determined and divided up according to biological sex rather than according to self-declared or identified gender. Um, but there are institutions who've taken disciplinary actions against individuals who have held these, have held those gender critical views, and or, or otherwise there have been cases of students sometimes trying to silence or harass those who have not. The most notorious case being that of the philosopher Kathleen Stock, who was formerly a professor at the University of Sussex, and I would say was essentially hounded out by what I would ca characterise as mobbing behaviour by large numbers of students, organising vigils and major protests against her practically every day, which, uh, some of which were backed, according to her, by some of, the other, some of her colleagues as well. And it just made her life uh, impossible, yeah. uh, impossible to function there. So uh, after she'd published this, what I think is an excellent book, Material Girls, which looks at the whole development of uh, various perspectives on gender identity, but uh, still takes a critical view of some of that tradition. Um, and this is an area where my colleague in Lukav Alice Sullivan has uh, been very active and published extensively. Then there's also the issue of so-called decolonizing the curriculum, which is as a slogan which has become official policy at quite a number of UK universities. 
there's a, there's a new book on this by sociologist Doug Stokes, just called Against Decolonization, which I cannot recommend enough for a very thorough chronicling and sober analysis of its implications. What decolonizing the curriculum means often in practice is not simply broadening curricula to incorporate a wider range of global concerns, culture, history, scientific innovation, and so on. Those are all things I'd very much support. But it's rooted in a very Manichaean West versus the rest dichotomy, which views almost anything Western as irredeemably colonial and ignoring the extremely varied extent to which various parts of the West at different times in history were involved in the business of global em empire building. Certainly the complex questions of how this related to other phenomena in those society, uh, including culture and thought, and for that matter also ignoring the non-Western empires, some of which colonized parts of the West as well. But this movement I think has been quite frequently informed by other developments in critical race theory, which essentially posits irreconcilable divides between groups defined in racial terms, and as such a state of almost permanent hostility, arguing often that practically all white people are racist almost by definition. And perhaps what I think is the most worrying one, standpoint epistemology, uh, which at its starkest valorizes knowledge not so much by its individual coherence, uh, its argument, its cogency, but by the identity of its authors. And from the, I mean, this is something that Doug Stokes uh, looks at in great detail very well. From those perspectives, decolonization often amounts to a radical attack on most forms of Western knowledge, culture, science, and so on. And on the other hand, can make mandatory, rather uncritical use of sources, texts from elsewhere in the world without really engaging into critical questions of their value. Sometimes, say, very traditional but rather outmoded modes of belief, including to do with uh, medicine and things associated with certain communities, uh, can be regarded as on a par with modern global science and mathematics. And in my own field of music, uh, the arguments have been used often to try and literally drive classical music out of the curriculum, viewed as little more than expression of a colonial perspective. I've written and spoken a lot about the relationship between academia and external practice uh, 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 or external institutions. And my own institution has its tagline, the University for Business, Practice and the Professions aiming to maximize external engagement as an alternative to more esoteric or sealed off quests for knowledge. I, don't, I certainly don't oppose that position or that tagline. In fact, I support it in many ways. But I think it raises, uh, it makes questions of academic freedom especially immediate. There are external partners and institutions who are not necessarily interested in more dispassionate search for knowledge, but they want things that will bolster their own reputations. Uh, uh, say a major chemical firm uh, that uh, funds a project for an academic to look into their environmental record may not be so happy or may not keep funding if it turns out that environmental record, the academic, uh, through their through diligent research, is found wanting in lots of ways. Um, and I think it's a great concern if there can be external pressure put on academics to fashion their work according to other needs. And even more so when you have partnerships with external with, with other academics in other countries uh, whose regi in regimes, uh, for example, in China or Russia, which are by no means sort of very supportive of academic freedom. And if that leads to a knock-on pressure on 
uh, at this end for people to sort of uh, modify their work accordingly, uh, perhaps as a condition of certain funding. I think that's extremely concerning. Or some historians can be under pressure to conform to certain patriotic narratives from wherever in the world, even if their research of the data leads them to other conclusions. All those things are manageable, I think, but they need robust safeguards and protections that can't simply be assumed. A lot of people would think academics can say whatever they want, and obviously that's not the case or we wouldn't be here, but how much courage does it take to speak out in, in academic fields these days? It depends on your institution, it depends on your position. It can be very difficult for junior academics, some of who've only got temporary contracts, um, and who are desperately needing to get more permanent employment. Because uh, inevitably some of that comes down to winning the favor of the people who will be making the hiring decisions. Um, and you know these people are involved in various academic factions one way or another. It's almost unthinkable that wouldn't be the case. And of course they're thinking, if I say, you know, if I say I write something which goes strongly uh, at cross purposes with this person who's got lots of power, this could hurt my permanent employment chances. And the same process when people are applying for research funding and so on, and sometimes when looking for promotion, uh, when promotion things uh, receive some external scrutiny. Um, I, think it's, I think it's particularly hard in narrow, small fields where there's only a, small, a few people involved, because if you write an article that might, where there's probably only, say, five, six, seven other people working on that area, almost certainly one of them will end up being one of the ones peer-reviewing it. And if you are flatly contradicting what they might have written on it, then that can cause problems. I mean, I'm not saying all peer reviewers do that. There are very principled ones who can accept major challenges to their own work as long as they are properly formulated. Uh, but inevitably, those things happen. And there's a lot of precarity in academia at the moment. Academia in the UK is in in very difficult financial circumstances. Fees have been frozen at 9,250 per year uh, for undergraduate fees since 2017. So in real terms, that means the amount that universities are bringing in is going down every year. And so there's pressure to cut some courses or subjects which are not recruiting well. And this makes academics vulnerable to redundancies and so on. And there are worries that if if you are someone who speak out, speaks out or might be seen as difficult or a problem because you're in a minority or you're asking difficult questions, then you could be more vulnerable to redundancy in that respect. So I think there are a lot of pressures, and certainly for junior academics, but sometimes for more senior ones in, in subjects which are under threat. Uh, Is there a lot of self-censorship going on, would you say? Yes, I think that's frequently the case. And there are various surveys that suggest that a lot of academics... Uh, do recognize that they self-censor. And I think that will continue if there's not a clear and active promotion of academic freedom and critical thought, which there is in some places, but not always. An active celebration of the value of challenging orthodoxies. Um, and I worry about that, especially in some more vocational fields in which there's less of a tradition of the approaches to thought and knowledge that we might associate with the humanities. Um, there is an attitude and approach of default scepticism, which I think is healthy in academia. 
So whenever one has a hypothesis or sees an established theory, you immediately look for possible vulnerabilities in it. I do this with, say, doctoral students, because in helping them prepare for vivas, I say, let's, let's check for any possible fault lines, because it's better we address these now than an examiner brings them up. Uh, see if there's anything that means what you're trying to argue could be disproved. And if so, either tighten up the arguments or change them if necessary. But I think when certain views or certain theses are associated with individuals who have positions of power, some are reticent to do this. But that view puts me very strongly at odds with one figure in my own field of musicology, an American academic called William Cheng, who wrote a book which has been very much celebrated, though I can't share that view, called Just Vibrations, in which he attacks what he calls a paranoid approach to scholarship. He takes the term from uh, the feminist scholar Eve Kosovsky-Sedgwick. Um, a paranoid one is the sort of thing I was describing, where you're often trying to sort of find out what might be wrong with something uh, as a way of trying to strengthen it. Um, and he is really, in his book, quite dismissive of much of this and many of the sort of criteria which we'd use to sort of establish scholarly rectitude in favour of something, some rather mellifluous ideas of, say, of, of saying it, what matters is whether this does social good or not. And I've, I find that very sinister, actually, because social good is something that many people will define in different ways, let alone whether work uh, achieves that end. And it seems uh, a roundabout way of attempting to sort of try and judge things on ideological and political grounds, rather than scholarly ones which can stand to some extent uh, beyond those. And I really believe that they can do. I do think we should hold academic work to very rigorous and very critical standards, even though not everyone finds that easy to deal with. And, uh, if you get a review back which sort of uh, shows up umpteen holes in, in what you've written and asks for really major corrections, that's not easy. Um, but it's, it's important. It's how, it's how academia does play a part in self-regulation. And I worry that we're moving away from that, it, from scholarly self-regulation towards ideological self-regulation, which is a different thing, and in some ways could move it closer to the situations of scholarship, say, in communist Eastern Europe. You mentioned Kathleen Stark as was one of the yeah. best-known uh, cancellations, but there's been so many others. Why do you think this cancel culture has grown so much in recent years? I think there's quite a number of reasons, and I would locate this... I mean, going back a few decades, relative to the growth of postmodern thought, in a way, which you can date back to the early 20th century, but the key texts came about in the 1970s and they really grew in influence in the 1990s, at which time I remember some not dissimilar debates from those today. They were around so-called political correctness in those days, but uh, they, were, they were not quite as strong then. Um, but in the period after the end of the Cold War, in which it could be said that faith in the possibility of a radically different type of society was lost by many on the left after seeing not just the collapse of the system, but just uh, the level of jubilation by many of the people in Eastern Europe who were freed from these terrible, in my view, terrible regimes. And so they focused their attentions elsewhere. And as some did after the failure of the protests in 1968, some disillusioned intellectuals, uh, some led to the conclusion that there was um, 
there was really no point in any sort of idealistic thought or any sort of grand narratives, meta-narratives they called, that uh, that sought to sort of uh, describe what was inevitable trajectories in history or thought or individuals and so on. And some of them became intensely sceptical of even the very possibility of truth and knowledge as such. Now, that was that was always going to be a cul-de-sac. If you just conclude you can't do anything, you can't do much with that. But I'd say what it led to, what what the scholar Helen Pluckrose calls a type of reified postmodernism, is a type of thing which disbelieves in the idea of wider truth, but does believe in there is truth which serves the interests of particular groups or which some identify as their truths. We hear the term, not just the truth, but my truth. Um, We've heard Meghan Markle use that term as well. And so in the process, you got away from uh, the idea that we were seeking something more dispassionate. I mean, as, as this sort of thought grew in its influence in academia, towards a sort of functionalization of knowledge, towards not is it true or not, but does it serve certain interests. And at the same time, with the growth of identity politics, um, and I would actually link this to an old feminist slogan, which I've always thought was problematic, the one that says the personal is the political, um, which you can link to the idea that that some people think that everything in the world is political in some sense, which... In a banal sense, I wouldn't fundamentally disagree with, but if you do accept that, it can also uh, legitimise the idea of political control of everything right down to people's personal lives. And that's my worry about politicisation of the personal. And as this sort of thinking grew, um, the distinctions between the individual and their work, between the professional and the personal, I think, came to be eroded so that a critique of someone's work could be viewed as a personalised critique. Um, No real sense of the difference between an ad hominem attack and a scholarly critique. Uh, And even worse, it could be seen as an attack or not just on an individual, but on a whole identity group. And that was the sort of thing that could often lead uh, to very furious uh, pile-on attacks, which I think are often at the heart of what cancel culture involves. There's also much to do with the change of media communication, and particularly social media, I'd say, in that respect. Um, In another side of my life, I've been involved in campaigning about abusive practices in music education, following major scandals uh, which were revealed at my old school of Cheatham School of Music uh, about 10 years ago. And it's a different world where more people can use both social media and wider, wider media to bring allegations to light, um, which when they, not, they do not feel served well by the judicial and police system, um, or when these are from a long time ago and that people are reticent to sort of bring them up again, or when the perpetrator is deceased. Um, and this is a double-edged sword. Uh, social media is in one sense, you could say democratic, it gives, uh, it gives many people a chance to speak publicly, but then there are a few filters involved so there is very there's very little sort of quality control there and it's very easy for all sorts of disinformation and sometimes uh, outright lies to be spread um 
I'm not saying in the case of certainly allegations of abuse or sexual misconduct that's necessarily the case or necessarily often the case, but it certainly can happen. And at the same time, social media, which can be useful for academics, it's a good way to sort of promote one's own uh, work and interact more with people from other forms of media and so on. But it doesn't really give itself to more intricate and nuanced argument. It's better with sort of uh, didactic slogans or pithy statements. And um, often all sorts of complexities, all sorts of contexts get written out of social media. And that's, again, a pro- part of the process by which I think pylons, which I think are a fundamental part of cancel culture, happen there. Many people would think social media would add to academic freedom, but do you think it's having the opposite effect? Um, I wouldn't say a necessary yes or no to to that question. I think there are some ways in which social media uh, gives people an outlet for their views which they wouldn't have otherwise. But then, in all in massively varying ways, institutions are sometimes concerned about academics and their own. Uh, engagement with social media and you can't realistically I think expect the same level of argument from an academic on social media that you would in an academic conference or something like that the medium just doesn't give itself to that and so institutions for better or worse are often coming up with social media policies to try and uh, judge what they think is legitimate or not legitimate for academics to do and there's another dimension to social media as well. Um, I mean, for younger people who've grown up with social media and knowing it all their life, um, it's very easy then to sort of inhabit realms which are made up uh, primarily of those who agree, who those who think the same way, and not often have to engage with wider public spheres. I mean, some say social media is a public sphere, but I'm not really sure of that. But wider public spheres where you're going to encounter people who think differently, you're going to encounter debate difference, uh, which even things like watching terrestrial television, which is less common nowadays uh, than it was when I was younger, or reading a print newspaper from cover to cover rather than going to just the articles to which you're pointed to um, by social media. Um, those things are less common. I think as such, we are encountering young people who just have much less experience of having to having to engage in a sensible and mature way with people who think often very differently to themselves. And that's a challenge for us as educators to try and get beyond that level and uh, encourage them to take a different approach, not not personalised critique or disagreement so much. Uh, but I think that's more challenging now than it was several decades ago, and I think social media is part of the reason for that. One quite specific issue I wanted to ask you about is uh, HR departments and policies and things. What role do they play? Well, HR departments are administering policies, administering processes. They're not generally made up of actual academics. And um, I mean, again, this varies a lot depending on the institution, uh, but some of them are often concerned just for the outcome that has the least fuss possible, I think, that keeps most people happy rather, th- rather than engaging in questions of whether it's legitimate for the reasons for some people's unhappiness. Um, I think... This is where we need policies which HR follow, processes they follow, but which have plenty of input 
from academics and those committed to f committed to academic freedom. And you know, some places are doing this and really working this into their HR policies, but not all. And HR, if they have to deal with complaints, including student complaints, because uh, this is an issue we haven't really touched upon. I mean, it is this sort of in a microcosm like the situation that happened at Sussex with Kathleen Stock. Uh, if you get enough students objecting to a lecturer, that can that can put pressure on HR departments. It can put pressure on heads of departments in a time when places have to try and recruit as many students as they can, retain them, and also get good satisfaction scores. And it's concerning, I think, if those things take end up taking precedence over concerns of academic freedom. And it's very important for institutions to protect their academics in that respect. As well as HR departments, there's also the real gross mushrooming of EDI, equality, diversity, uh, inclusivity departments, and individuals in institutions who uh, are tasked with that role, um, some of whom, but not all, are academics themselves. And uh, again, Alice Sullivan, together with the philosopher Judith Suisa, has written extensively about this, about how about how these bodies or these individuals can use things which supposedly stand outside of academic concerns um, in order to try and enforce uh, ideological conformity, especially on trans issues and on decolonization and other things. And some another organization through Freedom of Information requests has received a lot of data about the amount of money and the amount of staff involved in EDI activities compared to those working on academic freedom institutions. And the former hugely dwarfs the latter, hugely. And I think as a counterbalance to this, we need more people actively tasked with promoting academic freedom within institutions and promoting it to students and promoting it to other staff as well. I mean, it, well, I don't think it'll happen just of its own back. It, it needs, it needs active work, and the new Higher Education Act has some provision for this. It, it hasn't come into full sort of, uh, I mean, it's been passed, but it comes into full operation, I think, next year, and people are still sort of plowing through it and working out what the implications are. But there's a lot of, there's a lot of good things, but we'll know more about that. But I'm hoping we'll see a much bigger growth in active championing of this within institutions, and that will feed its way into HR, into EDI. I'm not saying there's any sense to oppose the genuine ideals of equality, diversity, and inclusivity. Sometimes those terms, when they have capital letters, if you like, uh, they have very particular and narrow meanings as they're understood. And people like Alison Judas would say that they actually oppose various forms of diversity, especially intellectual diversity. Uh, whose fault do you think it is that we got to this point? Is it that the academics should have spoke out sooner, or is it the universities chasing the money? It's a mixture of lots of things, and also wider cultural and economic changes. As I say, there's all the challenges of attracting students. There's uh, much more of an internal market between institutions, which have to run as businesses. Um, and those, those things have come sometimes to take precedence over commitment to free inquiry. And there are some academics who I would say are motivated primarily by activist concerns. Now, I'm not one of those people who thinks it's impossible for a scholar to also be an activist. I mean, certainly in my work on abuse in music education, I'm an activist and I also do sort of scholarly research onto it. But I think the two roles 
a difference. No one comes at knowledge uh, blank, as it were. Everyone comes with assumptions. Everyone comes uh, with biases, prejudices, and so on. Uh, but there are established academic means of trying to sort of counteract those. And, and when you're working with data of one type or another, I think, to me, one of the golden rules of scholarship is that if the data doesn't support what you're trying to make it support, you change the argument. You, you never, ever cherry-pick the data. Uh, you never sort of bracket some aside uh, because it doesn't suit your arguments. But that is not always what activists want. Many of them come with very strong ideological convictions, which are at the basis of what they do. And they are looking for scholarship which will bolster those and not, sometimes not prepared to entertain the possibility that they may have to rethink some of those. Now, in some cases, uh, it would make, that would make little sense. I mean, I wouldn't expect a feminist scholar to sort of uh, be looking to challenge the ideas of gender equality. I mean, those aren't, that's not really a scholarly, that's a sort of profound conviction. Um, but in other cases where people have quite fixed ideas of, uh, say, what the culpability is of different groups in some incident or some event uh, or some other process, um, I, I, th I think there can often be pressures which counteract academic freedom and critical inquiry, which are motivated by activist concerns. And I've written quite critically about a subfield of musicology, ethnomusicology, in which many scholars are very proud to sort of say that they see their activism and their scholarship as essentially uh, two arms of the same thing. And I, uh, I do feel that's a place where, which is very, very ideological and not often given to self-questioning, uh, which I think is a vital ex aspect of the sort of thing that I'm describing as an ideal. Um, I mean, another thing to mention is the role of trade unions. Uh, I mean, I'm a trade unionist and I'm committed to that and I, I'm i not always happy with some of the directives that my own union, UCU, has come up with, including recently, but um, I know sort of the whole history of trade unionism. There's been times when trade unions have opposed things like equal pay, for example, and but people stayed in and worked for change there. Now, some branches of unions have been problematic in some cases of uh, challenges to academic freedom and haven't always been very supportive of individual academics and I think that's that's a problem and I'm not really very happy with some of the things that the current leadership of UCU have said. Um, so sometimes this is why other bodies are needed uh, as well as unions to sort of help protect people's rights. As I said before, pressures coming from students can be very powerful in this era where students are seen as consumers. And it's very important that institutions are robust in this respect and do not, do not allow majoritarian student opinion to constrain uh, the freedom of academics to explore where they are led to by conviction and research. Your field is music. I'd be quite interested to hear how the creative arts have been affected by all of this. I, I can see it clearly with the political and social sciences. Yes. Can you tell us more about that? Yes, I mean, I'm, my, my field's music. But I actually work now, as of recently, I work now in a sociology department, and I, I work on lots of creative fields. I, I've taught about literature and art and film and things as well, as well as more wider things to do with social thought and so on. There are not that many people involved in the creative arts and academia who are 
who have a very active involvement with academic freedom groups. And I think that's a great shame, and I really want to attract more of them. There are many from the social sciences, and there's quite a few from the natural sciences and mathematics and things as well, and quite a few from law, but not so many from the arts. But I think the issues are every bit as pertinent there as in any other field. Um, we're finding artistic work itself often being judged on ideological rather than wider aesthetic grounds, and many who would who would not recognise the idea that there's a distinction between those two things. They would say all aesthetics are ideological, which in one sense I can see the argument there, but I think when it's, when it's applied so as to require ideological conformity, which is often in a way that's framed more about some ideas of artistic content and bracketing out questions of style and idiom and so on, that's very worrying. I mean, I've seen this in in contemporary music being my field, uh, that the sort of work which often receives a lot of research points and kudos is that which explicitly links itself to certain current political causes, like to Black Lives Matter or like to climate change. Um, and that enables it to be discussed uh, by those people who have no real expertise in that specific artistic field, uh, which will include some people in forms of management and so on. Uh, but sometimes they can see that this work appears to have some virtue behind it and is worth supporting for that reason, even, even if its artistic merits otherwise might be quite slight or it might not even be particularly original. And it's, I think this is creating a new sort of a new sort of ascetic economy, uh, especially in music where it's very hard for musicians to make a living unless they have a university position there, at least for creative ones, composers in particular, um, just because the work there is out there doesn't, doesn't pay very well. Um, there are other types of uh, pressures, uh, the whole ways in which research is evaluated, templates which have essentially been taken from the sciences and adapted, you know, with a lot of thought gone into the adaptation, but adapted for the arts and humanities and social sciences. But there's always some extent of trying to fit, uh, fit a square peg into a round hole there. And so, for example, you might find that any work that uses a lot of technology looks more science-like to some people and is seen as more research-like for that reason. And this particularly works for the benefit of studio composers, of whom there are many in academia, more so than those writing for more conventional instruments, perhaps. Um, um, so I, I, I think these things can act, if not constraints, but at least sort of uh, influences upon artistic trajectories when pursued in academia. And I think those are problematic and we need there's a new there's a new group called freedom in the arts which is trying uh, i mean this is not this is not dealing with academia it's dealing with the wider arts because these issues uh, exist outside of academia as well and it's trying particularly to sort of support artists who've who've received things like amounted to attempts to cancellation and so on uh, usually for ideological reasons or sometimes personal reasons um, and I suppose I'm still, in some sense, a believer in the 19th century ideal of art for art's sake, uh, or at least in the idea that, that art has some autonomy, and culture has some autonomy. Um, 
culture is not separate from society, but nor is it just a mirror of society. It stands as something that interacts with in a complex manner with the rest of society and uh, sometimes can can develop in its, in its own ways, which are relatively autonomous of other social developments. Uh, but I worry that some of the directions are trying to force it down very particular moulds, and that's a challenge. And it's also a challenge for those who write about art, because... Uh, there's pressure on them to sort of follow those sorts of agendas in the process. And then what I was saying before about artists as, uh, also having serving as external practitioners. Uh, and this Many who, well, particularly with music, probably also with theatre and dance, I think many who are not involved in the fields don't always appreciate the difference between the sort of education that's traditionally associated with a university and that associated with a conservatoire or training school, uh, one being perhaps more dispassionate, more conventionally academic and more critical, the other being much more practically focused uh, about training practitioners. Um, now, in the UK, the distinctions between these two forms of education uh, has become very blurred, especially in music. Um, I mean, I've got figures that would say that show that about 80% of people studying music at a university, at a place that's recognised that, are actually doing practical training courses of one type or another in music technology, in musical theatre, in commercial music. And those doing the more dispassionate critical inquiry uh, and also doing historical study and so on amount to fewer than 20% of students. And those, the culture in amongst practitioners uh, is not generally one that uh, is especially conducive to the types of critical academic freedom that I'm celebrating here. And uh, I think that really needs addressing uh, properly. That there's more to the generation of knowledge than just knowing what will get you ahead with a certain record company or something like that. You talked about the Freedom of the Arts organisation and there's obviously your council, yes. Professor Kaufman, starting his course. Yes. Do you think we're at a turning point? I think a lot more people are speaking out about this and the more who do, the more others who feel able to as well. Um, we have the new act, which I think is a really, personally, I think is a real positive way forward. I, I think a lot of high-profile cases have brought the fact that this is an issue to wider public attention. And some will try to dismiss academic freedom and say that's just a right-wing issue. There are people on all sides of the political spectrum who care about this. And in particular, I think, when there's been a lot of attacks on perhaps more established types of feminist thought and feminists there, that's led to a, a lot of people associated with that... Uh, realising how big an issue this is and coming on board. And those, many of those are people who would traditionally be associated with the left. Um, you know, I still identify as sort of left of centre in some sense. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's a big problem when we have too much ideological conformity within institutions. When there's, I mean, I do actually think we should have more conservative scholars as well. I think it's not a good state of affair when... when their perspectives are not sort of filtered into the whole discourse as well, even though I might disagree with them on some issues. Um, so, I, yes, I think I think the tide is turning to some extent, and I think some things were pushed to such an extreme that it could only do so. 
But I think there are other pressures, and not least financial pressures and institutional pressures, uh, which could actually get worse if they are not addressed and they're not challenged regularly. But on balance, I would say I'm optimistic. But the sorting out the situation of university funding to reduce the amount of precarity for academics, uh, to make academics feel more secure in what they're doing, I think that's an essential part also of creating a good culture of academic freedom. And there's a long way to go on that front at the moment. With, with, the, with the existing impasse in fees, which politicians on both all sides of the, are, I think, evading and just putting off. Um, and it, it, it's unsustainable. Forever. Well, we're, go we're going to see in the next few years, I think, a lot more redundancies, a lot more closure to departments, maybe even some universities going bankrupt if uh, new solutions are not found. And that worries me very much, and that has huge implications for academic freedom. Professor Ian Pace, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thank you. Thank you.